Careful now. Boing. So cool to be playing vinyl. Vinyl. Took the record off the turntable. You ready for this? Welcome to Behind the Vinyl. Here's your host, Stu Jeffries. Welcome to Behind the Vinyl, my friends. I'm Stu Jeffries, and this is the podcast where your fave artists bring in a vinyl copy of their hit, put it on the turntable, and tell us the stories behind it. Later in the show, Gary Newman, an electronic pioneer, tells us that his biggest hit was born out of the bass guitar. Went to London, got this cheap bass guitar, got it home, sat down in my mum and dad's room, and the very, very first notes I played were the do-do-do-do. Gary talks cars later. First, Lorraine Segato, a parachute club, and easily their most popular and inspirational song, Rise Up, on Behind the Vinyl. This song begins always either in the studio when you're listening to it or uh, live with a swell of a Prophet 5 sound. It's a rare synthesizer sound that was very popular in the 80s that you don't hear anymore. And uh, there's a couple of signature riffs in this song that people always tell me they, is what they sing back to me. They don't just sing the chorus, they sing this they always sing the the bass part back to me they sing the the chorus obviously and um one of the interesting things about this track was um it began with the soca groove our drummer billy bryant who's now passed away and i had this deep love of soca music we played it all the time in the groups that we had before parachute club and uh, this is our signature sound in a way because it's based on the Caribbean grooves that inspired us. So when we came back from a trip in Trinidad, we'd been perhaps into making our first record maybe about six songs deep, but when it, we were missing a track. And the track that we were missing uh, was a song that was not yet completed, and it was this song. This was one of the last songs that we wrote for our very first record. And what makes it interesting is, is that in many ways it's Daniel Lenoir's uh, approach to the production and to the arrangement of this song that makes it what it is. And not a lot of people know that, but he sort of took the groove and the little bits of pieces we had here and there and he kind of patched them together and he did it in a way, this is before computers, right? So. He did it all by hand, you know, um, little bits of tape here and stuff like that. So it's been about, I don't know, thir- uh, released in 1983, you do the math, over 30 years of a song like this, still in the consciousness of people, which is always really, really surprising. I sing it at every concert I do because I know that people want to hear it. There was only a short period of time in which I didn't want to sing it, and that was right after uh, I disbanded the Parachute Club, which was around 1989 to about 1993. I didn't want to have anything to do with the material. I just needed a break from it. When I returned to this song, I returned with a renewed energy that was amazing because I really realized how important it was to people for whatever their reasons are. And I started to give deep gratitude and thanks for the fact that people still love the song. And so now it doesn't matter how many times I sing it, I find a new way of doing it. 
I we've uh, we've rearranged this song a million times. We now have a gospel version as well, and it depends on the crowd, you know. Um, and the other interesting piece about this song is that um, I keep telling people I could do a book of Rise Up stories because what happens with this song is that everybody's got a specific memory of where they were when they first heard it and what it meant to them when they, they heard it. Now, I remember this myself. I remember the very first time I heard James Taylor sing Fire and Rain, even though he didn't inspire me as a uh, the kind of music I would write, but he inspired me because I know exactly where I was when I heard that song, right? And so we get a lot of Rise Up stories and some of them are really, uh, there's a lot of tragedy in them and a lot of beauty in them, like the autistic child who wasn't speaking or talking but started listening to the song and then started singing, uh, like the person who had the car accident and used the song as a, uh, you know, something to motivate them, you know, and then walked into a concert and said, I'm walking now, like really small kind of miracles. And um, so for me, you know, when I, when I see this, I, or hear this, I, I think that somehow, I'm not exactly sure why we were given the gift, but we were given the gift of this song and I'll just keep singing it until nobody wants to hear it anymore. Lorraine Segato, a parachute club, and rise up on Behind the Vinyl. Gary Newman will play cards in a few minutes, but first, Mo Berg of The Pursuit of Happiness and a song that quickly became an anthem in the 80s. Here's Mo, and I'm an adult now on Behind the Vinyl. Oh, all right. That the drum intro is always interesting to me. So this, interestingly enough, this is the original version of I'm an Adult Now that we recorded. This is not the one that was on our first album, which is called Love Junk, uh, produced by Todd Rengren. This was one we just did on our own. There was, um, we started the band, and you know, we're just trying to get shows, and just like every other band in Toronto. And I, um, I so we had a friend, his name is Scott DeSmit, and he had a little studio in his basement, just like a 16-track Fostex. And it, it, I mean, it was a, stu- a sort of a studio. It's not like now where anybody who has a computer has a studio. This was like he had a, you know, a, a console and a tape machine and all that kind of stuff. But it was 16 tracks, so we thought we should go down there and record a demo so that we have a demo so we can play music to these club owners so they know what we sound like. And so one afternoon we went down and we recorded four songs at his studio. and. Um, but he didn't really have the facility to record a drum set per se. And so our drummer had these, what were called, they were called Simmons drums. They were one of the first electronic drum kits. And so he played these electronic drums and then we overdubbed all the cymbals. But when you hear that drum intro, it sounds weird. It doesn't sound like a normal drum kit because it wasn't. So that's the first thing that always strikes me when I hear this version of the song. So this is the song, this recording was interesting because we had these four songs and we started trying to get gigs and then I had a friend, his name was Nello Giran and he worked for the National Film Board um, and he said, hey, we should do a rock video. That was kind of something that was happening back then. I mean, much music really wasn't very old back then, neither was MTV for that matter. 
And so, and so he had a friend who had a camera that had, and he had a little spare film. I had a friend who was a video producer in just a burgeoning video market. And so we just kind of collected some friends together, and we went on onto Queen Street, and we shot a video for this song. But it, this, it was funny because we kind of listened to the four songs. Did so, which song do you think would make the best video? We listened to all four. I think this one would. It wasn't like, oh, this is our big hit that's going to change our lives and propel us into superstardom all across the world. It was just like, this seemed like it's going to make the best video. So we, we shot a video for this song and we handed it into Much Music thinking, well, hopefully they'll play it on their independent um, uh, um, show. And then they put it into full rotation. So yeah, this is the guitar solo. And this is me just trying to be as weird as possible. So yeah, I mean, I wasn't, I wouldn't say at this point I was a super accomplished guitar player. I was a really good rhythm guitar player and I played lead guitar, but I was always trying to find some different thing that wasn't like sort of standard blues kind of thing, even though this was a 12 bar, which is also an unusual thing about this song is that it's kind of a mutated 12 bar, which you wouldn't necessarily hear that much. But I think that was because I sort of got a, my start as a live musician in the sort of punk days. And so there was an idea of like rockabilly and stuff like that in those days. And that's probably what gave me the whole 12 bar thing here. Um, but yeah, the video became sort of like an iconic piece of Toronto. Um, there's a lot of stuff in that video that's gone from Toronto. And so a lot of people see it and they feel very sort of nostalgic about it. So anyway, how this record came to be was we did the video and Much Music started playing it, but we had no record. We didn't have a, a record out. And so we'd go into a record store and people would say, hey, where's your record? And I said, I don't know, it's, we don't have a record. I said, well, people come in here every day asking for, I'm an adult now. I said, you should make a record. So we pressed up like, you know, uh, you know, a thousand copies and we got a friend of ours to design a jacket and we put it out and they just sold out. And so then we did it again, I think. It was a, even a different jacket than this one. Um, and then, and then that sold out. And then the rec there was a company called the Record Peddler, and they took it over, and they 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 started selling it like crazy. And then this is the Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers finally said, "Okay, we're on this now." And so Warner Brothers ended up releasing this single, and then eventually we got our deal with Chrysalis Records. But yeah, the, the, this is the Warner Brothers version um, that was remastered, and it was just uh, it had a real this had a really long and long life. This song so kind of worked out for me. <laughs> Mo Berg and the Pursuit of Happiness with I'm an Adult Now on Behind the Vinyl. Our final installment belongs to Gary Newman. Gary plays a copy of Cars and gives us a great story on the origin of it. Here's Gary. So this is Cars, one of only two songs I ever wrote on bass guitar. I'm supposed to be this electronic pioneer, and this is my biggest song probably, written on a bass guitar. I went to London in early 79. Uh, I wanted to learn to play bass guitar better. I thought that was going to be an important part of where my songwriting was going to go. And so I uh, went to London, Shrewsbury Avenue, got this cheap guitar called a Shergold Modulator. Um, still got it, actually. And um, got it home, sat down in my mum. I was living with my mum and dad in my mum and dad's room. Opened the case, picked it up. And the very, very first notes I played were the do-do-do-do. And I thought, all oh, right, sounds cool. I was just doodling, practicing, but I wasn't trying to write a song. I mean, need something else, do, 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 you know, whatever. And, and over the next, oh, it took about two minutes, two or three minutes, the musical side of it was all done. There's only three parts, it's very, very simple, you know, bass-wise anyway. And, um, and it was done, I think, within ten minutes, certainly no more than that, the whole thing from 
its structure, what the verses and choruses were, the little bridge part in the middle, was all sorted out and completely done. And then when we took it to the studio a few weeks later to work on it, I, I'd, um, I had a, a new synthesizer that I just discovered called a Polymoog or Polymoog, I'm told they're called. And we started to play this track. The drummer's doing his thing and the bass line is doing his thing. And um, we get to the start, one, two, three, four, and we're in. And I pressed the one key, that note. And then I didn't know where to go. So I just sat there with it, thinking about what to do with it for a bit. And then did the run at the end of it. I thought it actually sounded quite good, just hitting the one note and not, not going anywhere with it, just leaving it. Now we go somewhere with it. You know, kind of as an afterthought, and that became um, quite a feature of the song. And I've, I've met lots of sort of different producer type people, and, and so on. Now we talk about that as being a key factor, and it was really me just sitting there not knowing what to do, where to go with it next. And lyrically, um, not long before I wrote the song, I had um, uh, an incident in London when I was driving, and I. I don't know what I did, but I obviously did something because these people in front, um, in the van actually in front, suddenly got out of their car and came back towards me and were very aggressive and were kicking my car and trying to get me out and you know, opening doors and trying to open the doors and all that. Really frightening. And I'd, I'd obviously done something quite unfortunate. <laughs> Whatever. So I end up, to get away from them, I end up driving up onto the pavement. Where was this? Hammersmith, I think, West London somewhere. And anyway, so I'm driving along the pavement, and there's pedestrians, I was panicking, pedestrians leaping out of the way, to, I'm properly on the pavement. Uh, and went off the end and managed to, to get away from them. And, and lyrically, that's where that side of it will come from, about feeling safe in the car and so on and so on. And I started to think of the car as being kind of a, a tank for a civilian in the modern world. And I still think of them that way but that's pretty much where it comes from the whole song gary newman and cars on behind the vinyl and that's all for this episode remember you can hear more of your favorite behind the vinyl episodes wherever you listen to podcasts until next time i'm Stu jeffries see ya this has been behind the vinyl the podcast hosted by Stu jeffries audio production courtesy of doug morehouse Derek walsman and troy mccallum thanks for listening